Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Waddington. And before we uh, jump into uh, a very a very important film, probably one of the most prolific, film, prolific films made over the last 40 years, or just over 40 years, I should say. Uh, wait, how old is this movie? 30, 37 years? <laughs> uh, 1989. There it is. Which would make it uh, 22 years. 22. 32 years. Jesus, neither wow. of us can do math. We're not this good. is it's, a terrible start. We we are just slightly older than this film. Um, the film that we're talking about, which we haven't even said yet, is uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. But before we get to talking about um, that main feature for the, the focus of the pod, uh, we'll give you some banter and some recommends this week. So, Ian, what what have you been up to? What have, what have you been watching? You are going to be extremely happy with me, my friend. I have some excellent news for you, something that you have been prodding me to watch for some time, and Liz and I just cannot stop. I think we're going to do the third one tonight to round it out, but we are in the middle of the Before Trilogy. (gasps) I I knew you were going to be happy. I knew that was going to do it for you. Yay. And it is, it's it's glorious. I love it. I absolutely yep. love it. I think I think Liz and I were both in agreement that we think that Ethan Hawke may have been the weak link in the first movie, but the second movie is spectacular. It's one of the greatest sequels ever made. Yeah, absolutely love that second movie. The first time that that Melissa and I watched it, uh, I mean, a we we just fell in love with it, but b the the theater kids and us, I, we were just so enamored with this movie that is so dialogue heavy and allows for these long lingering shots just and just letting them be and do and say these lines it's and it's it's all of them i mean all of the films are like that it's it's they're quite something to behold i would um the third one uh is can be a bit of a doozy uh it's it's pretty real um so i i would just encourage you that uh, if and when you watch it, I would I would maybe not let that be the last thing you watch. Yeah, I, you you've kind of tipped to me that it gets a little heavy. I mean, it's still it's and great. Yeah, and that's fine. You know me. I don't I don't mind I don't mind some heavy. In fact, when it comes <laughs> to heavy, we were we were texting off mic a couple hours ago, and you told me that you had just picked up a copy of Gaspar Noe's Irreversible. And I was curious if uh, if you've ever seen it before, or if when that Blu-ray arrives, it's going to be your first viewing. Uh, it it'll be my first complete viewing. I remember a long time ago. Uh, God, I think I was still living with my parents. I was it was one of those like it's 
like midnight and I don't want to go to sleep, but I, I don't have quite the energy to stay awake to, for something like, and it, it was on like IFC and I clicked it on. I remember watching like the first 20 or 30 minutes and being interested, but just like my eyelids were shutting. And when I saw the package, when I saw the really cool uh, box set that um, Indicator was doing, I was like, oh, that'll be that, you know, I, I don't own it. I would like to own it. I, I, I mean, I, I've heard it's intense. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it, it, it does seem like a movie that I, if I'm going to get it, let me give me all the shit that comes with it, too. So. so. So wait, hang on. Is Indicator doing a Gaspar No box set? No, just just for uh, Irreversible. Oh, OK. Yeah, I think it's an April release. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta pick that up. You've also pre-ordered the uh, Event Horizon disc, which I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear about the restoration on that. I'm sure it's gonna be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the for anybody who's, who, for anybody who's dorky enough to really follow this shit, like the physical media and all that stuff, um, the, the long suspected is there, is there gonna be like a director's cut of the movie? It, it's not. That it, I don't know if it exists, but if it does, it's it's not on this this copy of it. Yeah, no, I mean that that footage, by all accounts, is destroyed. I mean, Paul W. S. Anderson would have to go back, and he would have to reshoot it in I, order to create a quote unquote director's cut. At this point, which I don't I don't feel is worth it. I feel like we can connect the dots based on all the information that's out there. It's just a gorier cuts it's just it, there's much more of the the cctv style of footage as yeah. far as what happened before sam neil gets there but yeah i i mean that's a movie that i've always liked that was a movie that kind of <laughs> inadvertently scarred me when i saw it when i was like 11 um but like it's the kind of movie though that even though i have that relationship with it like i'm i'm always kind of fascinated to watch it like i i just I think it's a really, it's easily the best thing that Paul W.S. Anderson has, has ever done. And, and on, on the other show we're doing, we're about to start our resident evil thing. So trust me, I've looked at his IMDb. It's not even a contest. It's yeah. It's you're about to go deep in the weeds, sir. And yeah, I think, uh, I honestly with event horizon, I think the cast does a lot of the heavy lifting in that film. Oh, big time, big time. Yeah. It's a great cast. So, uh, I, I and I, I I don't know how much you did this this week, but uh, I know over here in the St. John household, uh, we, I made it a, a sort of a concerted effort to um, try to pick things to watch that were either Spike Lee directed or um, that were definitely heavily either uh, black director or black actor driven, um, because we're talking about Spike Lee and we're talking about the importance. Of, of black filmmakers. Um, it, it is Black History Month, and, and we are very conscious of that. We wanted to do an episode in, in the best way that two white guys doing a film podcast could could to, could talk about it. So um, watched a bunch of stuff. Um, I, don't, I, I don't even know what to talk about really in general. Um, uh, I did watch One Night in Miami this week, and I did watch Malcolm and Marie this week. These are uh, two of the newer things that you can watch. Uh, Malcolm and Marie is on Netflix, and One Night in Miami is on um Amazon Prime. Neither one of them are my, are my recommends, but I certainly liked both of them. Have you had a chance to see either of those? I, I have not seen Malcolm and Marie, but I have seen One Night in Miami, and I I did enjoy it. Um, I I think I had I think I had a little bit of trouble with the pacing, but I mean I can't fault 
any of the performances they're all spectacular and then the 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 sort of sam cook finale is incredible yeah absolutely incredible i think regina king has shown real potential uh behind the camera yeah there's a great there's a great dga podcast where uh barry jenkins is moderating an interview with her um and obviously he directed her to, to an Oscar win a few years ago with If Bill Street Could Talk. And so it was great kind of hearing them just chat about it. And um, you could tell that there was a, like that, that Barry Jenkins, you know, I, he's a seasoned director, but you know, he's still pretty new, I think in, in the conscious of people who follow film. Um, but like he gave, he had so much respect for what she did and, and the craft and, and that it, it wasn't just like a kind of like a fluke, right? You heard her talking, like talking the, uh, the the trade right talking shop the way that you know talking about jib arms and lenses and stuff and you could tell that she knew exactly what she was talking about so it was it was a good, it was a good interview and I, I i i again yeah the a great a great story kind of you know i i love the idea of taking a real story um or you know that we knew we knew these people were together on one night but kind of hypothesizing what was being talked about and and, and and yeah, you know, some of the dates, some of the things were fudged a bit, facts and stuff, and, and you do that. But I, I think I think you just have to give license to, yeah, that's that's what they're going to do for this. And it, it worked really well for the overall um, the overall story they were trying to tell. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, I, I wish I had the name of the actor, but the guy that plays Muhammad Ali just knocks it out of the park. I mean, as high a bar as Will Smith set when he played him in Michael Mann's film, I think this guy really does, he really goes the distance to, if you'll pardon the, the boxing pun, to to not only meet Will Smith's performance, but I think in, in some cases to better it in, in definitely a shorter amount of time. I mean, he's got less He's got less to work with as far as storytelling goes, but I think he definitely, of the four of them, he is really the the standout. Oh, that's I. Well, it's I. That's so interesting because I, I I of course really like Leslie Odom Jr. and and he's he's obviously from Hamilton. Um, and I love Aldous Hodge. I I I've only seen him in a few things. He's he plays Jim Brown. He's great in The Invisible Man. He's in he's in an episode of Black Mirror that I is is it's a great episode and I but. They're they're all they're all good, um, and uh, I, yeah, it's hard to. I mean, it's it's great. Like nice John Turturro kind of cameo in there. Who uh, who come? Oh no! Not, oh my God! Not John Turturro. That's Michael Michael Imperioli. Sorry, I'm I'm mixing my Italian American actors there. My bad. But uh, tell me tell me a little bit about Malcolm and Marie because I'm seeing quite mixed responses to this film. Yeah, I and I went down a, a wormhole on this one. So um, I'd, I'd heard about it for a while, and I was I was very interested in it. And uh, uh, plot wise, it's basically um, it's semi autobiographical. Uh, but basically, what happens in the movie is that Malcolm, played by John David Washington, is a film director uh, on the night of the big film premiere, and Marie, who is his girlfriend, played by Zendaya, um, uh, they come home from this this premiere, and she is noticeably upset, and what sparks essentially a night long argument sort of back and forth is this, um, this idea that he didn't thank her at the premiere. And it's, it's um, through the arguing, it's very, it's become very clear that uh, John David Washington's character based a lot of the screenplay around Marie uh, about Zendaya's character. Um, And they have this argument. Um, So I think as a, as a film about, 
you know, two people going through just a rough night and really hashing their shit out. The other thing that the movie is about is essentially film criticism. And uh, there's a whole part of the scene where, where, where Malcolm is reading the review of his movie based on uh, some anonymous LA Times writer. Now, they don't, they, they think they might give a name, but it's not a real name. But it could be very indicative of somebody who really is an LA Times reviewer. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but the way they talk about film criticism and critics in general is not really flattering if you're a film critic. And um, I listened to uh, not only a really great discussion about the film, but also uh, an interview with Sam Levinson and John David Washington. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as as an actor, again, it's very dialogue heavy. Um, and it's all takes place in the one in this one house, uh, all all in one night. I I love it for that, and it's very stylized. It's in black and white. Um, I, I think it's got a real a real feel to it. Um, but I also, if you're if you're a film critic, I could understand why you might find this pretentious, if not offensive, because it it goes pretty much right at them. Um, so I don't I don't know I don't know. I, I think as a as a something to put on and watch. It's entertaining. It's probably a one and done just because it really is just a, a couple sort of on the brink of <laughs> destruction kind of the the entire night. And I'm not trying to give anything away. I mean, that's it's a it's a giant argument. And it's well written. I think um in particular, Zendaya is is really good in it. Um and that's not to say that John David Washington is bad, but I think I think she I think she gets to shine a little bit more in the movie. Um good movie. Uh but and I, I can understand kind of the uh I don't know whatever the backlash that's coming from it. Well, speaking of film criticism, I think I I tipped you to this as well. I listened on Thursday to a very very great interview uh, on WTF with Mark Maron. I listened to Mark Harris, uh, who is a film critic. He's married to uh, the great playwright Tony Kushner, and they have one of the best discourses on film criticism that I think I've ever heard dealing with film criticism, past, present, and really the future of it. I think it's uh, really important. I just wanted to plug that again to try and encourage you to listen to it. And for, for anybody else who listens to our show, uh, you should absolutely listen to that discussion. It's incredible. Yeah, I think that's going to be my, my Tuesday commute podcast listening will be that one. That's next time I, I have to be in the car for an extended period of time, so... Yeah, no, that's I'm I'm excited to to sort of chit chat with you about that and Horace and Pete. I I don't suppose you had. Uh, I'm gonna push it again. You didn't have a chance to to start Horace and Pete. I we it sounds like we both had a Spike Lee week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was just filling my head from Sunday from Sunday until last night. All I was doing was filling my head with Spike Lee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't all Spike Lee, but definitely it de my the week was definitely themed for sure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm. I unfortunately, I I wish that I had time to have watched one of his documentaries. I was gonna pop on Four Little Girls and just ran out of time. Now Liz is actually she's told me that that she's watched that because she's a document like you. She's a documentary fiend, um, and she says it's 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 very powerful, very impact. I don't know if you've seen Four Little Girls. She says it's very angry. I haven't seen. Uh, I, I've not seen any of his stuff. I and I, I had the same idea with um. Uh, when the levees broke, but I didn't. Again, I didn't. I ran out of time. Well, that's when the levees broke. That's quite lengthy, isn't it? Isn't that like a multi-part? Uh, yeah, but I mean, just to like to see any of it. I mean, I don't. I didn't think oh, I was gonna yeah. accomplish the whole thing, but yeah. 
But yeah, I guess uh, if it's not your recommendation, I think we should give a little bit of lip service to uh, is is bamboozled your recommendation? It's it's not my recommendation, but I did watch it this week again. Uh, bamboozled is um, it's a lot. Yeah, to say the least. Now, um, I that that is a crazy fucking movie. I have no idea one how Spike got it greenlit. Or two, how he convinced anybody to let him make another movie. I'm not saying that that he was wronging making the film. I think it's an absolutely vital, necessary piece of... I mean, I balk at even using the word entertainment. But yeah. I, that is... I could I could make a pretty goddamn good argument for that being in Thousand and One You Must See Before You Die. Because it is unlike anything else I've ever seen. You know, when I was in when I was in college at Western, uh, as a part of one of our theater history classes, we um, the discussion of minstrelsy came up because that is that is a part of theater history. It's a it's a part of American history. That's you know uh, it blows, but it it happened. And so um, uh, the the burning of the corks and the putting water in it and the smashing it down like that that is historically accurate. So we we watched just like just that clip of the movie when I was in theater history, just to kind of see that this is kind of what they had to do. Um, and it always like wanting to watch the whole movie had been embedded in my brain since I saw that clip. Um, and then when I saw that criterion was releasing it, I was like, Oh, I'm just, I'm going to get this. I'm just going to buy it. And the movie is so like, I don't know. And I, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I definitely, especially since, um, I'm thinking way back to our, our Oscar Misha episode when we talked about Within Our Gates. Like, I watched a couple of Spike films that week and and then a bunch this week too. And I'm by no means a Spike Lee aficionado, but um, maybe the most satirical thing he's ever done? Like, just just all over the place. Well, there are, there are some weird choices being made in that movie. I have no idea what Wayans is doing performance-wise. Like, it's... Is it... Is it good? What he's doing? I I don't know. Well, you know what's what's so what's so great though is I had that same thought. I had that same thought. And then there's that scene where he he goes to see his dad and his dad goes, "What basically like what the fuck is that voice you're doing?" And clearly it's an affectation. Clearly not just Damon Wayans, but the character is putting it on and and when and when like when that moment happens it goes, "Wow, like I mean this guy who has a fake voice and is definitely kind of trying to be somebody that he's really not putting forth this show that he wants to get fired for. And yet becomes this, like this revelation that everybody loves. Yeah. It was, uh, it is a, it is a, yeah, it is something. It is a sight to behold. And just, yeah, I, I can't even really fight the right words to describe it. I mean, it's a choice. I mean, at some point, I I assumed that they must be lampooning somebody, and I briefly for a few minutes tried to find if his acting choices were based on Spike going after somebody, and I couldn't, unless I passed by it or something, I didn't find anything like that, but I had to, I had to assume there's no way that you're going to let an actor just do this unless it's for some specific reason. Right, I don't, I don't know. I was just absolutely befuddled by it. And Jada Pinkett Smith, I think she's really good. The movie seems to just, I don't know, man. I don't know what happens 
in the last 10 minutes of that movie. I mean, one of the most powerful things in it is just letting the images of the way that that black people have been portrayed in the media just play, whether it be cartoons or, or silent film or whatever else, just allowing that to play for the extended period of time that it does is really powerful, but it's bookended by just nonsense. I don't know. I think that movie really falls apart in the last 10 minutes. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with it It a little bit. I don't, I don't know if it's a good movie. It, and it feels it feels very experimental and I don't and that's not a, I'm not denigrating the film it feels like this was the most like that there were there were so many ideas but maybe not the best like not really a solid plot to put them all in so it just it seems it seems very loose with with structure and and plot um but but you're right like some of the the images and how it all goes I mean I you know we're 22 minutes into this this episode and i feel like we could easily keep talking about bamboozled because like i like honestly like a lot of spike's movies there's a lot of these tangents and riffs and 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 even just like camera choices that are go wow we, we could talk about we could talk about the first time they air the show for like an hour probably because it's just like whoa just smacks you right in the fucking face well yeah and you have that jump from the digital DV cameras that you can buy off the shelf in any Target or Walmart to the that 16 millimeter, which by comparison looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And I and I know I just said I don't I don't know if it's a good movie, but I can also I'm I'm diametrically opposed within myself saying I think this movie is something that everybody should see before they die, but not necessarily going. It's a good movie. It's just, it's a, it's an experience. It's something to behold. It's a mosaic of sorts. I don't, I don't know, man. It just, that movie fucking challenged me in ways that I honestly wasn't expecting. And I was almost kind of grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Um, well, I, I kind of want to. I kind of want to segue to to recommends. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna yeah, let's do it, man. I'm, I'm gonna jump the gun a little bit with something we talk about later, which is, um, so Spike Lee has uh, three films in the book. Uh, do the right thing. Um, she's got a habit, and Black Klansman. Um, and to to get to my recommendation, um, not, never having seen she's got a habit, I'm gonna say take that fucking film out and put in what is my recommendation, which is Malcolm X. I was, I was wondering if you were going to go the Malcolm X route. I'm excited to talk to you about it. You and I have been talking about Malcolm X for some time. We really have. And, and having, and, and having put it off as long as we have. So yeah, that's what I started my Spike Lee week with. And I don't know if it was the right choice. So I'm definitely, go ahead, man. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on, on and bat the ball back a little bit with, with Malcolm X. Well, let me. So the first thing I'll say is I I knew I knew I was gonna watch it. I knew I was gonna watch it this week, and I knew that I'd have to plan it out really well because the only the only detriment I've ever had to watching it is just the running time. It is a very long film, um, and especially when you have two kids, it's like finding three hours to watch a single movie can, can be tough. And so um, this last Sunday, I we I had to break it into two parts. There was just no other way for me to do it, and so. Um, that, so that's a little background under that. Um, but in that way, uh, or not, not breaking up, but just the, the length of the movie makes so much sense. And, uh, you know, happy to say, at least from, from where I was sitting, I didn't feel a minute of it. 
I felt like I was always interested and I, I liked, you know, and I'm fine with, you know, like for like totally opposite, but like a movie like Selma, right. Which is about Martin Luther King Jr. But is also about a very particular kind of time of his life. Right. I, I love how all encompassing this is. And as somebody who straight up just didn't know enough about Malcolm X, like in general, didn't know the the sort of the roots of 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 him i didn't didn't know his upbringing and and everything before he he joins the nation of islam and i didn't even i didn't realize how bad the falling out with the nation of islam was and i mean i knew that he was assassinated but i i guess i wasn't ever that and and granted i don't i don't know if we'll ever totally know exactly how that all i mean not not how it went down but who hired who or, or how, I mean, I, I don't know enough of that to, to really put it out there, but I think what, 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 what struck me the most um, beyond not feeling that the time go by and really being immersed into it is just how good Denzel is in the movie because you get every version of Denzel that you like. You get charming Denzel. You get angry Denzel. You get passionate Denzel. You get crying Denzel. Like this is, this is the kind of role that you go look at all the and and I and I this is based on a real person so I'm not trying to to sound I don't know like like a piece of shit but like as an actor you read this script and you go I get to do all of this shit oh yeah sign me up I mean it, it and I obviously you know being the Oscar dork that I am I've heard for years just how the the robbing of him not winning this uh and and Al Pacino winning for Son of a Woman and now that I've now that I've seen this movie, I I understand <laughs> everybody's complaint about that. And it's not that I don't like Son of a Woman, but it's Al Pacino is very one note in that movie. Uh, he's fine. He's oh fine. no 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 hundred percent. I mean, I love Al Pacino. I I worship at at the feet of Al Pacino. But him winning for Sense of a Woman is in you know technical terms horseshit yeah yeah absolute horseshit especially compared to malcolm x i will go with you on that the performance i will say that i do think the pacing in malcolm x i i did feel not all of the length of it but there there are certain transitions i think we spend at towards the beginning i think we spend a little bit too long in the the quote-unquote warriors and and the Delroy Lindo character. I as much as I love Delroy Lindo in this film, I think there's a little bit too much of that. The middle section of the film, I think, is where it really excels. Everything from him going to prison to joining the Nation of Islam and becoming the Malcolm X that everybody would know. I think all of that is absolutely spectacular. And then the film starts to drag its feet again a little bit, leading up to his assassination. I think you could. It's about three hours and 20 minutes. And if you could get it down to three hours on the nose, I think it would be perfect. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, and we talk about that a lot on the show is like, what, what little things could you, could you take out to, to help with pacing and stuff? And, and I'm, and and I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think that there are things that you could trim down or, or tighten up. Um, but none of them were so glaring to me that I, I really, I thought of I really thought about it all that much. Uh, I just, yeah, it's, and, and we'll talk a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm sure we will because I'm going to bring something up when we get to stats. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think I think Spike Lee is kind of hit and miss as a director, right? Uh, I mean, I think Clockers is is okay. Um, 
I wasn't in love with clockers. Um, and, uh, and, and, but, but there are obviously other films of his, um, in, in particular, uh, black Klansman and inside out are, are like, or inside out. Oh wait, inside man. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Um, uh, yeah, I, I know it. I got you. I know like what I, you meant. I really, I really, really love those two movies. And, and now that I've seen this, I, I, I think I know kind of where, you know, where my upper echelon of Spike Lee movies, uh, are, uh, but, but this one, you know, I, I want, I, I don't want to get into it yet, but I want to have a bigger, like, what is Spike Lee going to be remembered for con, con conversation towards maybe the, the end of the episode. But, um, I, I, I cannot, I cannot recommend this movie enough from a, from a filmmaking standpoint to an acting performance standpoint, um, to just, again, movies are not history and and obviously you need to do more research on your own if you want to know more but it it definitely it definitely gave me more knowledge about the man that i i ever knew and i i appreciate the film that spike lee put out and i i just i just really really liked it so glad i finally watched it it's you know it's top five spike lee for even if it's probably be at the bottom of my top five but it is still Top five, Spike Lee. I think he. I think it's a monumental achievement. Um. So it's it's your turn for a recommend, and I have a feeling I might know what you're doing. Yeah, you're not going to be surprised in any way, shape, or form by what mine is this week. I finished my Spike Lee week by revisiting what is my absolute, hands down, no holds barred favorite Spike Lee movie, and that is 2002's Twenty Fifth Hour. I, man, I adore every part of this movie, and and every time I watch it, I find it's one of those great films. I find something new to appreciate about it. Like I've always, I've always loved Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, but I think this time around, I was just so enraptured by him. Anyway, so for anybody that hasn't seen Twenty Fifth Hour, you've got a cast that just will not quit. <laughs> Edward Norton in the lead. You've got Barry Pepper in probably the best thing he's ever done. I was going to say, yep. Yeah, I mean, the, sec- the, the second best thing is probably the movie that Tommy Lee Jones directed, Three Burials. That's like the next best thing he's done. Uh, you've got, as I mentioned, Philip Seymour Hoffman. You've got Brian Cox in just a heartbreaking role. You've got Anna Paquin, Rosario Dawson. Uh, who am I missing? I feel like I'm missing somebody. Or did I, I think I hit them all. Oh I think God. I hit well, all the big names. Randomly, you've got Tony Siragusa, who was a football player, playing the, like, what is he, Romanian or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The big, Ukrainian. The big guy, fat, yeah. Fat Ukrainian fuck. Yeah. Um, and then you've got Isaiah Whitelock Jr. Shit. Yep. Uh, yep. I love him. I think he. I think he gets to say shit like three times in that movie, and every time it just gets better and better. His his signature delivery oh, of the word shit is yep. glorious, absolutely <laughs> glorious. So uh, Edward Norton plays Monty Brogan. He is a heroin dealer. He's working for you know some pretty unsavory characters. This this Russian mob in New York, and we are at a time. It's two thousand two, so obviously nine eleven is very much on everybody's mind. It's got that beautiful haunting opening title sequence where we see the wreckage of 9-11 and the cleanup and the two lights that were uh, erected there for a time and it's just about his last 24 hours before he has to go to prison and 
sort of reevaluating his life and, and dealing with the people in his life and a little bit of distrust as to who sold him out. Was it Rosario Dawson or was it uh, his Ukrainian handler? I mean, it is a great sort of slice of life, 70s era, 70s sort of era homage to performance pieces. I, I would have a hell of a time making my top five Edward Norton performances, but I think this one would would very much make a case for the best work that he's ever done. I, and it's just, it's strikingly beautiful. I mean, it's got a couple of those great uh, Spike Lee tracking the, the dolly shots. Um, I think my favorite shot of Philip Seymour Hoffman ever is after coming out of the bathroom with Anna Paquin and him just staring at the camera, just overwhelmed by what it is that he's done i just i fall in love with philip seymour hoffman over and over again in this role i think he is just absolutely special it's not you know when we talk about the 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 great pantheon of philip seymour hoffman performances just time and again when he would deliver i don't think this one gets talked about enough and that that kind of bums me out uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember I remember seeing it, not not when it came out. I know I didn't see it when it came out, but I saw it probably 05, 06 at some point and just was kind of okay about it. And that's, I will say that outside of, of outside of Black Klansman, uh, Inside Man, and Malcolm X now, the first viewing of a lot of the movies I've seen of his, I've been pretty lackluster about, honestly. And I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, the movie is not about 9-11, but it is certainly very topical. It's certainly very much of the mind. And of New, um, Spike Lee is nothing if not a, a New York uh, proponent. Um, it, it, in a lot of his movies, it's it's like New York as a character, which we'll probably talk about a lot when we talk about Do the Right Thing. Um, but uh, but it, now it's something that this thing that he does, which is where the movie's about one thing, but there's a lot of references to something else as you go through the movie. And, and the, the, the frequent, uh, references to, to nine 11 throughout the movie is, is interesting. And I know bef- the first time I watched it, I didn't like it. And this time, I don't know what it adds, but it, 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 it's like the movie does need something else. And I, I think that the, having that in there does help it. But before I, I definitely did not like it. Well, I think it, I think in hindsight, I think it creates an interesting juxtaposition when you think about the, the massive loss of life, that sort of, it can never happen here mentality that was completely shattered on that day, juxtaposed with one man losing what he sees as, you know, it's seven years, but to him, it may as well be the rest of his life. I think that's, I think that makes for an interesting contrast. Well, and, and, and I mean, sorry, go ahead. I would, there, there's so much too about, I mean, they, I think it's Barry Pepper that spells it out. Like either he, either he doesn't go in and he's got to risk that or he kills himself or he goes in and they, they, people will kill him in there. But like they basically, there was no, there was no decision that wasn't going to end with him dying pretty much. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he's Barry Pepper says to Philip Seymour Hoffman in that scene. Either way, this is it. This is goodbye. Like you, yeah. you're never gonna see him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he could he could come out. You might see him when he comes out, but you're not ever gonna see quote unquote. You're not gonna see Monty again. Yeah, 
he'll be something else when and if he comes out. And my sort of final thought is if you want to... Movies that make me cry, this is it, man. Like, Liz, God bless her and her patience with with the number of times that I, I put her through movies that I know that she's just like, oh, I'll, I'll let you have this. Or stuff like, I showed her Looper a couple months ago. And she's like, yeah, I get why you like it. You know, stuff like that. I'm yeah. like, oh, that's so condescending. <laughs> um, but, you know, no, I'm not talking shit about her. I mean, she she knows I mean well when I say something like that, but um, she's like, haven't you seen this movie like 50 times? I'm like, yeah, every time. That whole Brian Cox thing, talking about going to the desert, you know, finding a new life, you know, you can, you can find God in the desert. It just, man, it fucking floors me every single time, and I, God, I adore Brian Cox. There are few, very few actors in this world that I would actually want to sit down and have a conversation with a cup of coffee, a beer, or whatever, but just to have 20, 30 minutes with Brian Cox and just listen to him talk, I would, I'd give anything. I absolutely adore that man. Yeah, he has had quite the career. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that we have two, two Spike Lee recommends this week, uh, The 25th Hour and Malcolm X, both movies we watched this week. So there you go. We, and, I, and I think we actually support the other one too. We just were giving you, giving you some, cho- some choices. Yeah, get some get some Spike Lee up in you. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna keep with our Spike Lee fix here as we talk about do the right thing. Written, directed, and produced by and starring, I should say too. My God, starring Spike oh, Lee. Hey, easy, easy now. I know, I know. There's a lot going on here. Um, so this is a big ensemble piece. Uh, let me just let me just rattle through the names. And then, and then we'll talk about kind of who they are and related to each other later. Okay, here we go. Spike Lee plays Mookie. Danny Aiello plays Sal. Ozzie Davis plays Demare. Ruby D plays Mother Sister. Giancarlo Esposito plays Buggin' Out. Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim. John Turturro as Pino. Richard Edson as Vito. Roger Guinevere Smith as Smiley. Rosie Perez as Tina. Joy Lee as Jade. Okay, and now here's... I'm going to keep saying names, but these are, these are smaller parts. We have Steve White as, um, as Ahmed, uh, Martin Lawrence as C, Leonard Thomas as Punchy, Krista Rivers as Ella, Robin Harris as Sweet Dick Willie. What, I mean, one of the best names it, it just ever. Um, oh, hands down. I love it. Paul Benjamin as ML, Frankie Faison, there's a callback to last week, uh, as Coconut Sid, the, oh, the great Sam Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy, Steve Park as Sonny, Ginny Yang is Kim, and then uh, the other two are just great little cameos. We have Frank Vincent as Charlie and John Savage as Clifton. And anybody else you want to shout out? I, I just I just said a lot of names. Oh, you said a lot of names. Did you get Miguel Sandoval? I didn't. As as the other police, as one of the police officers. Yeah, you know how much I love Miguel, man. Love that guy. <laughs> Um, okay, so and as we go through the plot, we'll kind of tell you who they are to each other, but you know, there you go. Okay, so uh, we already mentioned that Spike Lee has three films in the book. This, She's Gotta Have It, and Black Klansman. So accolades. Um, I'm going to roll through what I have quick, and then I, got, I, I did something this week that I, I have to tell you about. So, so uh, at the Academy Awards, um, I would say pretty notably it was not up for Best Picture, it was not up for Best Director, even though I think a lot of people were kind of clamoring for it. It was up for Best Supporting Actor that year. Um, 
uh, for D- Danny Aiello was nominated. He did not win. That went to Denzel and Glory. And it was also up for best original screenplay, which it lost to Dead Poet Society. Um, at the Golden Globes, uh, it was up for best picture, director, supporting actor, and screenplay. It didn't win any of those. Uh, at Cannes, it was up for the Palm Door, which it lost to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was, and I'm going to get it right this time. I screwed it up last time, but to be to be eligible to be in the National Film Registry, you have to have, it's it's got to be 10 years, and in the first year that it was eligible, Do the Right Thing was inducted in the, into the National Film Registry, along with uh, Streetcar Named Desire, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Wild Bunch. Ah, good, good, good. Some of those... Some of those we might be doing this year. Ooh, maybe. Um, it was not on the original AFI Top 100, but when they redid the list in 2007, it was ranked number 96. Ian, before I cut back to you with some other things, um, Wednesday night this week, uh, we watched we watched a, a movie. I think that was the night we watched One Night in Miami, uh, but I, I was still wide awake and I wanted to watch something. And... One thing I was doing a lot when we were doing our decade by decade thing was watching other films that came out the same year as the movie that we were talking about. And a movie that I had never seen that won Best Picture this year, the movie just happens to be called Driving Miss Daisy. I had never seen this movie. So I felt like, well, let's put this into context. Let's let's watch Driving Miss Daisy. Have you seen Driving Miss Daisy? I have not, but uh, before you before you give me your rundown on Driving Miss Daisy, I just want to shout out, I, I, there's something about directors I love when there is, there's an arrogance about them. I love listening to, uh, I love listening to uh, Billy Friedkin talk. I love listening to Ridley Scott talk because they, they have an arrogance about them, but it's an earned arrogance. The movies speak for themselves. They deserve to tell you how it is. And I think Spike is very firmly in that category as well. When Green Book won Best Picture, he said, great. Whenever somebody's driving somebody, I get fucked. (laughs) So with that in mind, please, (laughs) please give me the rundown on Driving Miss Daisy because uh, let me tell you, I have no fucking interest in that movie. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I mean, the movie is, it's pretty simple. The movie opens up with Jessica Tandy, who was an old Jewish woman living in the South, who basically backs her car off of a, like an elevated driveway kind of thing. And she's fine, but the car is not. And her son, played by Dan Aykroyd, um, decides that she needs a driver. She needs, that she can't drive anymore. She's getting too old for this. So basically, uh, through piss poor storytelling, Morgan Freeman comes into the, the picture and becomes becomes the driver for for miss daisy but also does some other stuff kind of around the house too um and uh it's got a very the plot just plays exactly the way you think she's she's mean at first she doesn't want him around and then she begrudgingly lets lets him drive her around and then of course oh she starts to like him and then they become good friends and then by the end it's like oh wow we we all learned something that if we we just spent time with each other we can all get along um but like this <laughs> it it's just not it's just not good it, it just i'm going to assume there's a lot of casual racism played for laughs um a, a little bit yeah um but it's mostly just it's it's actually the way that they 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 almost don't talk about it 
um, like there's there's a uh, there's a servant that Jessica Tandy's character has, and I for, I forget where I think it's like Idella. I, I I forget what her name is. The movie is quite forgettable, um, but she's been with she's been with Miss Daisy for like years, like a long time, and then there's a moment where Idella, spoiler alert, she dies, but instead of giving this 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 actress of color any kind of dignity with her death it's she's she's shucking peas or she's she's you know she's um breaking up pea pods and like the bowl drops and hits the ground cut to her funeral and it's like this woman who was in a in a way so important to the world of miss daisy that's that's what her death gets a, a bowl of dropped peas and then a hard cut to her funeral um and it's just like the one moment, the one moment that that Miss that Miss Daisy is sort of forced to confront that you know Morgan Freeman is black and that she lives in the South is he's driving her to some. It's like from from Georgia to Alabama, and they stop off to to eat like lunch on the side of the road, and these two cops come up and are you know kind of aggressive with with Morgan Freeman, and um, they look at the they look at her license, and then they they make some comment about her being Jewish. Uh, because I think that's, I think we're also supposed to like go, Oh, look they're They, they both have a hard time when it's like, let's, can we not do that? Can we please not try to make that comparison? Cause clearly one person is working for the other. So let's, let's not go there. The movie. Yeah. It, let's, let's not try and put them on the same level, man. I, that, see that just reaffirms that I have like, fuck that movie. I haven't seen it. And I'm not going to. So don't don't anybody come at me with well, don't judge it till you see it because just fuck that movie. Well, no. And if I wasn't such the Oscar nerd that I am, I don't think I ever would have. I don't. I really don't. But I've seen it. I'm glad I've seen it. And now I can make I can make it. Uh, you know, I can I can stand back and go, yeah, that movie is is terrible. It's just not. I, I don't. I just can't understand it. It is it. It is one of the like worst decisions like in hindsight 2020 just like i think honestly i mean i think going from driving miss daisy to dances with wolves and back-to-back years it's just like i don't know what the fuck the academy was thinking uh, a lot of uh a lot of safe options i would say i yeah. mean one of, one of my one of my favorite things when it comes to talking about awards for do the right thing is i didn't know that uh in doing in doing the research i found this out kim basinger uh, was announcing the Best Picture winners, and she says, you know, we've got five great movies, and they're all great because they tell the truth, but there's one movie that's missing because, you know, it's not, I'm paraphrasing her, of course, but I'm saying because because it tells the truth, it's something about how it tells the most truth, and that yeah. is do the right thing. And I don't, I wish I had had time to watch the clip of that. I don't, does she get booed? I'm nope. going to assume. No. Nope. Oh, she does? Okay. Nope, nope. She got, they, they clapped. Um, Good. And then, was it and, like a condescending clap or no, was no, it no. not at all not at all okay. and actually all it's right. so it's so funny you mentioned that because one of one of my film podcasts i listened to is called unspooled and when they did do the right thing they had spike lee on and spike lee actually was like i'm i'm grateful to kim basinger for for actually saying something like that he definitely gave her some praise on that on that uh that episode of, of unspooled which is great well, I I just I don't mean to assume. It's just I uh, my mind always is cast back to Marlon Brando refusing his Oscar and and having the Native American woman turn up to refuse it for him, protesting treatment of Native Americans in film and the way that you go back and listen to that clip. There are more boos than there are cheers, and that is a 
fucking stain on the history of that industry and they should all be fucking ashamed of themselves yeah i agree i agree uh, but that's that's all I have in terms of of stats that I found. Do you have anything? Oh, and so just really quickly, it's not on the IMDb 250. Uh, it ha- it currently has a Rotten Tomato score of 93% critical and 89% audience. Well, I would uh, I would say that there are certain awards that you and Melissa talk about on Below Freezing, and those are the 2020 awards. And in 2010, I think they've the 2020 awards very rightfully gave Do the Right Thing Best Director best editing and best original song for fight the power Fight the power yep in terms of critical stuff to say about this movie um there's a lot i don't know how much time we want to necessarily give to it uh overall there were there were certainly critics there were critics like ebert who I think understood what Spike Lee was trying to say with the film and and earnestly enjoyed it and thought it was thought it was an incredible film. Um, uh, uh, a review that I read that um, that I, I I could read from, but I don't necessarily need to, is is uh, from the New Yorker, Terrence Rafter, uh, Raftery, uh, who didn't think it was going to incite any kind of violence, but certainly thought that Spike Lee missed the mark with this one. And then there were uh, a lot of critics who thought that this was just going to straight up cause riots in the streets. Well, I'm, I'm definitely sure when we get to talking about the end of the film, we'll definitely loop back around to journalists. And uh, I think the, I don't want to call it poetic irony, but the sort of irony, the, the, the way that Spike really held a mirror up to these critics and they, they missed it entirely. I think they, a lot of them did genuinely miss the points. Uh, I will say that I do really, I don't want to spend too much time on criticism either until we get to, to talking about the end of the film and just how ironic that is. But I do just want to read the second paragraph of Ebert's review. I love it so much. Of course it is confused. Of course it wavers between middle-class values and street values. Of course it is not sure whether it believes in liberal pieties or militancy. Of course some of the characters are sympathetic and others are hateful. And of course some of the likable characters do bad things. Isn't that the way it is in America today? Anyone who walks into this film expecting answers is a dreamer or a fool, but anyone who leaves the movie with more intolerance than they walked in with wasn't paying attention. Fucking, this is why Ebert was one of the greatest critics that ever lived. That paragraph right there, if you... Fuck, man, he just fucking nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Well, uh, and maybe maybe when we come back to criticism, uh, we'll... There's something, there's something that I want to say kind of in response to that, uh, but I think we can, we'll save that uh, for, for towards the end of the film. Um, so, uh, but this is the point where I ask Adam, Hey, do you like lists? I, I love list. I, I love list. Yes. I love lamp. What do you got? What do you got this week? Uh, I, I got a slightly alternative list. I mean, I, I could give you vultures top 10 Spike Lee films of all time, but I also have, because we were just talking about Roger Ebert, I have Roger Ebert's top 10 of the 80s now, because I, I think uh you may already know this list i well i know of it and i know where this film is but i don't i don't remember the list in general so i'm excited to, to okay. revisit this it's gonna be a little bit incendiary and you know there are some bears that just have to be poked oh, let's do it let's poke that bear uh, all right ebert's 
so this was on Ebert's great movies list and both him and Siskel when they were working together obviously they would do at the end of the decade they would do their top tens uh for Siskel just as a point of reference this was also on his top 10 of the decade it was number six so here we go Roger Ebert's top 10 1980s first one at number 10 House of Games I'm so interested in this movie I've never seen it uh, David Mamet yep uh, number nine, Platoon. Don't think any surprise there. Nope. I do. I do. I do love Platoon. Uh, number eight, Mississippi Burning. That's. A, have you seen that? I have. I love that film. Yeah, that's a good movie. I yeah. that monumental performances from both Hackman and Defoe in that. Yep. Uh, number seven is the Akira Kurosawa film Ran. Okay. Yeah, one of the honestly one of the most beautiful films I've I, ever seen. I definitely number six this film. Uh, number six, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Again, I don't think any surprises there, though I will take issue with it shortly. Number five is My Dinner with Andre. I haven't seen it. Neither have I, but I, I do. My appreciation for Wallace Shawn, I think, is is definitely growing. <laughs> so I, I am excited to see that. Uh, number four is Do the Right Thing. Okay. Number three, and this is where I take some issue, is E.T., you can't have two Spielberg in the list. You got to pick. You can't have E.T. and Raiders. Well, I mean, apparently you can. I mean, he, he just, uh, well, he, I mean, he just who, did it. Who, who am I to argue with with, with Mr. The one, Roger Ebert? The one you just praised so highly. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, <laughs> honestly, I go Raiders, but whatever. Number two is The Right Stuff, which I have not seen in more than a decade, but I remember liking. I know I have to revisit that film. That is a movie that is too long. Honestly, I, I can't weigh in on that. I honestly don't remember. I do remember being entertained for a good chunk of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And number one, you you know what it is, don't you? Yeah. It's a raging bull. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is weird for me. I always go, I, I think I said this on the show, Raging Bull isn't the first great movie of the 80s. It's the last great movie of the 70s. Whatever. I don't, I don't care. It's it's a medium. Yeah, I know. I know you don't. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but there you go. There's an alternative list. There's Roger Ebert's top ten of the 1980s. Love it. Love it. Um, so I'm gonna do my best to sort of describe the plot of the movie before we just kind of jump in. And I think it, this is an ensemble piece, and it does it. It's important to note, obviously, that this takes place on the the hottest day of the year. Um, but I think in terms of plot, I think what I'll try to focus on is that we we follow Mookie, played by Spike Lee. He works. Uh, at Sal's famous pizzeria. Sal is played by Danny Aiello, and he runs it with his two sons, Pino and Vito, played by John Turturro and Richard Edson. Um, uh, there's obviously some some racial tension, especially between Pino and Mookie. Uh, uh, Mookie seems to get along pretty well with Vito, um, and and honestly, he kind of has a he kind of has a uh, uh, sort of a, a playful antagonistic relationship with Sal, uh, kind of as the movie kind of starts and, and progresses. Um, what really starts to sort of set things in motion is uh, Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito, uh, comes in uh, to get a slice and notices that the wall is covered with very famous Italian-Americans, but that there aren't any brothers, as he calls them, on the wall. Um, he asks Sal, why is that? And Sal basically says, you get your own place. You can put whatever you want to on the wall. This is my place. So Buggin' Out, uh, over the course of the film, tries to get people to, to uh, protest going to Sal's. It doesn't really work. 
until later in the movie, Radio Rahim goes in with his uh, his boombox blasting and Sal is pissed. Um, he gets in to turn it off, but that rubs Radio Rahim the wrong way. And later on, when Buggin' Out and Radio Rahim are together, uh, Buggin' Out says, hey, I want it. We should boycott Sal's. Yeah, we're going to do that. So other stuff has happened. And we'll talk as we talk about characters, I'm sure it'll come up. But it's, it's I wouldn't say it's too indicative to, I guess, the the main plot. So it's the end of business day. And Sal says it was a great day. And Sal kind of gives this thing like, I'm going to call it Sal, Sal and Sons. And Mookie, you, you have a job here for life. And then uh, sort of our, like our four kind of roaming people that, that are, it's that uh, Martin Lawrence crew of people show up. It's like, ah, we're closed, but we let them in for a slice of pizza. And that's when Buggin' Out and Radio Rahim come in and sort of make a big scene about you need to, you need to get, you need to change what's on the wall. There's a big, big verbal argument that ends with Danny Aiello taking a bat and smashing the boombox to pieces. And then what was just a verbal altercation turns into a physical one that spills out onto the street. Um, Sal gets some, uh, some licks on Radio Rahim, but Radio Rahim really gets the upper hand on him. The cops show up and um, what happens in the movie, uh, which unfortunately we've seen a lot of in the news over the last couple of years, is um, a police officer uh, takes a nightstick and uh, starts to choke Radio Rahim, and he chokes him until he dies. And the the police try to to leave, which they do with the body, and it leaves the onlookers stunned to say the least. And and Spike Lee, in a moment of I wouldn't even know what this moment is, but uh, in this moment, um, takes a trash can and throws it through the window of Sal's Pizzeria, thus inciting kind of the the actual sort of riot of the the building, and uh, they 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 wreck it up, they burn it down, and the movie ends essentially with Spike Lee and Danny Aiello the next day, with sort of uh, we don't know what the future is going to be for either of them. Um, they, they, they part ways, and uh, that's kind of the end of, of the film. Now, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we didn't get to talk about. Um, uh, part of that is also just how funny some of the stuff is, too. I know that the plot that I've just described is very serious, and it is, but there also is a lot of comedic moments throughout the movie as well. Um, so, do the right thing. What is your familiarity with this movie? What was, what was your viewing number on this? Uh, I think this is the this would be a, probably about the fourth time that I've seen it and it's it's been about it's been more than a decade because I know the first three or so viewings were in pretty rapid succession uh, probably about 2006 or seven about the time that I think I gave you or sold you the the criterion disc that I had I don't remember if I gave it to you out of the goodness of my heart or if I made you pay cash monies for it I actually, I think you just gave it to me, which I, I, it, it, I still have it upstairs. Oh, nice. Um, although I think we both also, we just, we got the, the updated Blu-ray restoration that they, they did. Um, that which, oh did. man, another Criterion shout out. What a great restoration, man. That, Love it. That is my, I think, uh, I, I waited until after the, the, um, after the credits, after the opening kind of dance number, and we, we get to, we see Sam Jackson, then we kind of get our first. You kind of, I don't even know what you would call it, like the stoop to stoop shot, that nice, that nice, uh, steady kind of uh, steady cam shot across the. And I, I said, I said this, I said this restoration is insane. It is, it's beautiful. It's really, really good. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it just speaks to the the legacy of the legacy and the level of prestige that comes with a Criterion disc. I I think it's stunning. And right now, I've been doing them a little early in the episodes. I'm going to do it early again. Unsung hero, Ernest Dickerson, cinematography man. I mean, that the fact that there was no nomination for his cinematography is one of those like hindsight is twenty twenty things. Absolutely baffling what he did to make this movie look as good as it does and the just the color palette of it i mean they talk about you know we've got to make sure that we avoid cool colors we've got to avoid blues and greens we've got to sell the idea that this is the hottest day of the year on this block tensions are going to rise and the heat is doing absolutely nothing to help that and the thing that blew my mind i mean i did did actually have the time to watch some of the supplementals, which I'd, I'd seen a lot of them before, but I went back and, and took a look at uh, the new Criterion Blu-ray has a mix of sort of old ones and new ones. And it's it's baffling to me. That first shot, that that those beautiful quick pans that happen in the movie, the first quick pan from Martin Lawrence, very young Martin Lawrence, yeah. or the baby face Martin Lawrence, the quick pan from him to Radio Rahim. I love, I love that quote. He even walks in stereo. It was raining behind him. And they managed to make it look like the hottest day of the year. Absolutely incredible. Like, they it's just, I can't imagine the mountain of work they had to do on the budget that they had. And in the, I mean, some people said 12 weeks, some people said eight weeks. So we'll air in the middle. Say, let's just say they had 10 weeks to shoot this thing. I mean, that's still a hell of a feat for spike's what third movie fourth yeah, movie his, his third movie yeah yeah um i'm so glad you went with ernest dickerson i'll just say mine now too because i was going back and forth between him and and uh barry alexander brown the editor of the film um i i really like the way that it's it's clipped together i mean i well, we can talk about the opening if you want to i i think the opening bit is too long but i i like the energy that it brings to the film but even like the way that they cut the dance and it's like she does a move and then they she finishes the move and it cuts to her like it cuts to her across the screen in a different outfit and a different lighting scheme and i just i really like the way that it they there's a lot of quick cuts but a lot of like a lot of lingering ones too and i i just it, it was this was a yeah, well-made movie doesn't doesn't that dance number feel a little indulgence? It it doesn't at first. It just feel it just feels too long. I mean, it's one of those things where I I, I had the note right next to it, which is I mean I guess you got to have something happening over your credits, and what it it's tough because obviously we get to hear the entire song, we get to hear "Fight the Power" in its in its in its entirety. So it's almost like it almost feels like the Rosie Perez dancing is a bit distracting in a way. Like I it I realize I can I can watch and listen at the same time, but I definitely I definitely felt like I I, I wanted to close my eyes and just try to listen to the words more. Um but yeah, it, it's I, yeah, yeah, it, it's I'm okay with the choice. I just think it's too long. Yeah, which is why I I understand the there there is some fantastic cutting throughout the course of the movie but yeah i definitely couldn't go with editor as my unsung hero especially i want to stay with editing and rosie perez specifically for a moment and tackle something controversial i mean rosie perez has said that the reason you don't see her face in her nude scene is because she was crying and she felt exploited and anyway that's that's never a great thing to hear 
I mean, she is she has in the years since come out and said that she has sort of made peace with it, and I believe she has done other nude scenes since. Uh, I can I couldn't cite them off the top of my head, but that is honestly the first thing that I would lose is that ice cube. Thank God for the kneecaps and thank God for the like the left nipple and thank God for the right nipple. Honestly, I, I do think it was a massive misstep for Spike Lee as a filmmaker. If your actress does feel exploited, I mean, if she's, if she is, even if she didn't say to you, she feels exploited and she is, you know, crying, Hey man, maybe, maybe let's not do this. Yeah. I mean, and I know some people have have said that they think that he doesn't write women very well. That he does he treats that regardless of 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 his ethnicity, he treats women in his films like every other filmmaker does. He might write black characters fantastically well and be able to speak in that voice because you know he is black. He he that's the voice that he speaks in. But he sure. apparently, according to some anyway, he doesn't write women very well and i i think i think in this case and even in something like 25th hour where i feel like rosario dawson is a very undercooked character i i do have to that is my that is my big spike lee criticism yeah you know i i think the thing about the the movie and that's why that's why i kind of wanted to focus on what like essentially the the plot is because there are a lot of moments like like that where he she she has a pizza delivered to her place and that's why he's there and he takes a moment to sort of be with her before he has to leave and it's not like them having a moment is a bad thing to have in the movie but it's one of a dozen moments like that that good bad or whatever however you feel about them there's a lot of them in the movie that i don't know i don't know if we need it for the purposes of the plot right like and like here's like a moment that we don't need, but I wouldn't cut for it. I wouldn't cut at all. Is is all of the moments with with ML Coconut Sid and Sweet Dick Willie, just hearing them kind of shoot the shit and talk about the the Korean grocers across the street. Like it feels honest and real, and 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 by all accounts, a lot of that was just just improvised. Um, and it it does add a flavor of of oh these are these are guys that that are on the street. Same with the stuff with uh, Demare and Mother Sister, like. I don't know that I love that stuff. I certainly don't hate it. And I, I understand the like the world building that he is trying to do with all of these characters, which I, I think is is successful in, in terms of world building, but in terms of does does that further the plot, I I don't think so. And um it's 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 interesting in doing a lot of the research and, and watching the, some of the supplemental stuff like Spike Lee's scripts and his stories, they're, they, they don't flow. Like if you, if you're used to a certain kind of film, a certain kind of narrative film with a traditional kind of beginning, middle and end, none of his films make sense in that way. None of his films really follow that progression the way that you're used to. Something like 25th Hour is very, very tangential and, and we'll, we'll go and, and hang out with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Anna Paquin for a while, even though the movie is not really about them, right? And that's, again, that's not bad. It's just, that this is only my second time seeing it, but early on I was like, wow, there's just a, a lot of characters. There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, one of my favorite moments, one of the, the, the moments I really enjoyed for its comedy is where John Savage is coming in off the bike and he scuffs up the Jordans and like 
there's this moment that looks like it's going to be like fairly climactic. And then I love this whole idea of like, why don't you go back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn and they all have this big response. And it's, I think it's a very funny moment. I think it's a moment of levity in the film that we need, but do we need it? No. Well, I would honestly, I would argue that we do. I think it's just another one of those incidences that just keeps pushing the bugging out character because the bugging out character, him and Radio Rahim, they are both the sort of linchpins of of the plot. I mean, they they are the reason that we are going to get to the conclusion that we have. So I don't know. I yeah, I don't. I understand where you're coming from as in a moment that do we need it, but I also feel like it's just it's one more thing that's going to push these characters to the edge. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let me give you a different moment then. The moment where where Frank Vincent is driving by in the car. And the car gets soaking wet, and then the cops come, and they're like, "Oh, which one was it?" And again, it's it's a fairly there's a, it's a fairly comical moment when you know Frank Frank Vincent's making up names, and they're like, "Oh yeah, was that his last name or his first name?" And they're clearly not taking him very seriously. But then it obviously it ends with this like, you know, if I come back here, you know, they basically threatening violence if they have to come back. And if you want to say sure, it furthers the idea that this this neighborhood is sort of like constantly being patrolled by the police and and all that you can say that we get that we get that in other points of the movie and it's a fun it's an interesting fun thing that world builds i guess it helps shows how hot it is but is it essential to the plot i don't oh no i i agree with you i would yeah i would definitely cut that before i cut the the john savage scene sure and and honestly i don't i don't i would not i i would say don't cut the john savage scene i think it's a great moment but i also and i see your point about you know Constant or pushing bugging uh, bugging out even further, but it's just there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of moments like that in the movie. Like and like I said, good, bad, whatever. I just that in terms of furthering that plot, I don't know that it that it does it or does it very well. Yeah, no, it's 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 just something that adds to the sort of vignettes episodic nature of the film. I mean it. Yeah, it serves to build the world and the neighborhood, but yeah, like you said, very little plot-wise. Although, you know what this 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 movie made me realize, the movie made me realize a bunch of things, but I have I have never lived in a in a neighborhood that was as as closely uh tight-knit as one in this movie. You know, and and it's maybe it's something about just living on the West Coast and th- shit is just spaced out more. But I remember, like when I when we when we visited New York City, it was like, wow, everything is right by each other. When I when we would go into Chicago to when we were living in Indiana, we'd go to Chicago and go to the city and see a show and hang out. I mean, the houses are like, I mean, like three feet from each other before you get. to, I mean, it's just it's just like that close, and I I get like how that can feel sort of overwhelming, but also there was something about watching watching Mookie go from place to place and like seeing everybody and like just, you know, constantly, whether or not, you know, people very well, just knowing like, Oh yeah, that's, that's this, that's this guy who lives here. And that's this girl who lives here. And the sense of, I mean, that's the one thing I, I got to give him is that the world building is so clear. Everybody and kind of who they are and how they fit in is, is amazing. If there's, if, I mean, there's many things I'll give him credit for, but like that is, I got to give him props on that. The world building is great. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, again, I've 
like I did last week, maybe speaking out of turn on certain issues in, in Science of the Lambs, I don't want to speak out of turn again here, but this, this feels to me, as someone outside of that community, it feels like such a quintessential New York story, as much as anything that Scorsese has done. Oh, I mean, yeah. This feels like it, it would feel sort of disingenuous for this film to be set anywhere else because yeah. of that nature of everybody living on top of each other and the nature of what a powder keg that can be when you're up in each other's business 24 hours a day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, in terms of, of some the research kind of stuff here, too. So when you were when you were, you know, exploring the supplemental stuff with the criterion, did you get a chance to read his production diary? I kind of I kind of skimmed it. It is well the first thing I'll say is is it's it's amazing how clear so many of the elements of the script were before he even started writing it. I again that that's really great. The other thing I have to mention is man, he wanted Robert De Niro so hard for the the role of Sal. And how do you I was going to ask you about that because we always talk alternative casting on the show. How how do you feel about De Niro instead of Danny Aiello. So the my my two immediate thoughts were one, I think it's a it's a twenty five to thirty percent better movie because I think that's just the gravitas that he brings. On the other hand, the next thought I had was is when this movie comes out, is it a Spike Lee movie or is it a Robert De Niro movie? Oh, it's one hundred percent a Robert De Niro movie. And that's the problem. Yeah. I absolutely I'll, I know, I mean, from everything I could read, Robert De Niro didn't do it because it's, it was just very similar to the roles that he had played, which, which is true, and, um, and that's great. And I think, I, think, I think Danny Aiello is good in the movie, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think, I think ultimately it, it played out better the way that it, it did. I, I honestly, I, looking at all of the alternative casting choices, I, I think the only one that I miss is potentially Delroy Lindo being one of the three corner guys because he also went after James Earl Jones as Demare and I love Ozzie Davis in this movie to the point where I I honestly think that it should have been him nominated instead of Danny Aiello. Yeah, we we should pro- I mean we could spend a few a few moments talking about the fact that the only acting nomination from a film about essentially like the black struggle in New York City was for one of the white guys in the film. I, yeah, you want to you want to talk about irony. I I mean, how does that even? And then I, uh, I yeah, I don't I don't quite understand uh how how that choice came about, but again, yeah, it's, hindsight it's, it's being so it's beyond tone deaf. Yeah. Beyond tone deaf. Um, but here's I, here's a here's a couple others. We've got uh, Lawrence Fishburne yep. is who he wanted for Radio Rahim. That's, I I mean, I love me some Lawrence Fishburne, but Bill Nunn inhabits that role so I don't even know what the word is I want to use. I mean that I I just can't see it as anybody else. I really can't. Well, and the the way that the casting sort of like maneuvered because he couldn't get Lawrence Fishburne because initially um, Sam Jackson wasn't going to be playing uh, uh, Senior Love. That was going to be Giancarlo Esposito, but because uh, because Lawrence Fishburne didn't didn't commit to the role, there was a whole bunch of shuffling going on, and so we got Giancarlo Esposito as Bugging Out and and Sam Jackson as uh, Senior Love Daddy. Which again, it's I I the idea of our t- like talking about alternative casting is fun and it's a great wormhole to go down. But just like last week when we were talking about Sounds of the Lamps, like I like. 
Giancarlo Esposito is bugging out. And and Sam Jackson is is senior love daddy. Like like I can't. I'm, I mean, I, yes, I could see the other ones playing whatever role, but like that's just who they are. Like I just I don't even want to pretend that anybody would be anybody else. No, I I I think I think everything worked out the way that it should have on this film. The last one that I'll call out is is Matt Dillon turning down Pino, which oh thank God. Oh man, like, I'm I'm sorry. I'm. It's only in recent years that I've started to appreciate Matt Dillon, but young Matt Dillon does not do it for me, man. No, and John, especially not in that role. John Turturro is, and, and granted, I I just love you know I I love because I I you know I have quite the 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 play collection, being that I'm an actor and I and I teach, and one of my favorite things is to even like not even read a play, but to open up because in the first couple of pages it'll tell you the where the original production was done and who played the original roles, and I love I love seeing things like in the in one of the interviews he says like he was in a play called. Um, Italian American Reconciliation, which is a John Patrick Shanley play, which I have, and you can totally just see his name in the original run of that play. It's one of my my favorite favorite things to do is to just look and go who who played this role first, and did they have a career? And oh, look, they did, and that's awesome. Yeah, I'm so glad it was him. Yeah, I mean, Totoro again just completely inhabits that role. I mean, I couldn't, I honestly couldn't imagine it any other way. Like I said, this this thing worked out. 100% the way that it should have. Yeah, for, for, for real. So, and it, thank God, and, and as far as things working out the way that it should have, thank God it ended up at Universal instead of Paramount, who were pushing that, that ending, that god-awful ending where they reconcile at the end, even to the point where there's a, they really wanted a hug. Like, fuck you. Fuck that disingenuous. Like, no, get the fuck out of here with that. That is just... I mean, that would go down in history as one of the biggest cop-outs in film ever. Well, yeah, that is some some white savior, white guilt bullshit right oh, there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of glad you mentioned Scorsese because um, – and I – one thing that I, I loved about, again, reading reading the journal or reading the, the diary that, that Spike kept was – how much of just of, of a lover of film he is and the blatant homages he did. I mean, the love hate, obviously uh, an homage to night of the hunter. He, he references specifically, he wanted to use the Dutch angles from the, because he liked them in the third man. He liked how that helped build the scenes. There's just like, and I, and I love that he, he doesn't shy away from it. You know, I, and I, I, I do, I love, you know, we're, we're, we're a couple of film nerds, right? I mean, like, whenever we get together, even if it's not for the purpose of doing this, we can't not help but talk about movie shit, right? And so to hear these these people uh, much, that we respect... Much to the chagrin of our wives. I, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is so true. It, it, it's so true. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's great to hear these people who, who have been in the game forever and are well-respected and great at their craft to hear them talk and just know that they're just nerds too, that they, they love watching shit and, and, and being inspired by what they're doing and, and by what their, their fellow filmmakers are doing. I, I just, I loved, I really, I enjoyed the hell out of reading that production diary a lot. I just, I, I enjoyed it. It really more than any other, more than any of the interviews I watched or anything. It was just such a, you know, watching him build on these ideas and know where he wanted to go. And like that idea, like earlier, I was like, maybe I'll have a character from school days, come back in and then like a few you know a few days later it's like no scrap that bad idea don't do it i just yeah 
No, I, I love I love Spike's confidence, and I think, as I said, he's one of these filmmakers that has 100% earned it. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, speaking, speaking of Dutch angles, I do want to bring it back around to talking about things that there are too much of in this film. I do think the Dutch angle, is it's leaned on a little heavy. I think he does go full third man to the point where the Dutch angle becomes almost meaningless. <laughs> and then uh, here's the deal. Fight the Power is a great song, but after Do the Right Thing, I don't, after watching the movie, I don't need to hear it again for a while. I I was so happy in the movie where bugging out goes like, is that the only song you have on there? He's, and he's like, yeah, it's the only thing I like, the only thing I like to listen to. Good Which, thing to bring it back to Radio Rahim. I want to, can we talk about his character? Yeah. A little bit. Of course. Uh I, I think it's a, and maybe this is just me projecting, I think it's an interesting idea to make him, there is an unlikability about him, which is very challenging, I think, when it comes to the ending, because he's the character that's going to die, but he's been painted with this, he's, he's, he's just got a lack of sort of self-awareness, spatial awareness, he's extremely rude. And I, I think that is, I think that's a, a genius play as far as a character to be like, I am, I'm going to, to paint him with this certain unlikability. I mean, he's rude as hell to the Korean grocers. I mean, everybody is. Yeah. To the Korean grocers. I mean, he's rude to sell. And then to have him be the one that is killed to make, to challenge you to being like, no, 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 it doesn't matter whether he's rude or whether he has this lack of spatial awareness. It is still the loss of human life. And, and I, sorry, can I... I didn't know when I didn't know when I was going to bring this up, but I think this is about as good a time as any. So I'm really glad that you kind of bring up that it, that it doesn't doesn't matter what we saw him do throughout the day, right? That he he was killed by way too much force, an excess of force for no real reason, and obviously uh, Spike Lee is commenting more at the time of. Uh, Howard Beach and some of the other things that were happening in 1988-1989 but like you cannot watch that moment at the end and think of what happened to George Floyd in up in Minnesota and and not just because it was because he died while in police custody from I mean again to call it excess force is, is an understatement but the fact that there were people in the media who were trying to paint this picture of George, George Floyd as like, oh, but look, let's list off all of this shit he did in his life that was bad. And it's like, okay, sure, question mark, but anything, but what you're trying to do doesn't justify the fact that a guy knelt on his neck for over 10 minutes, right? And, and then, and, and died. Like, and so the reason like the reason that this movie it will will forever and always be remembered is not it's not because of the tangents that that doesn't work right it's not because uh you know we hear it's not because of fight the power right it's because we haven't learned yet we haven't learned to stop to not just excuse but to find like to find these reasons as to why it happened you know like and this whole thing like i I, 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 I knew what was going to happen. I'd seen it once before. I knew what was coming. 
And yet all I could think about was George Floyd. And like, I, you know, I, I obviously yearn for the day where this movie won't be prescient and, and make sense. And the fact that it, it's just as relevant as it was when it came out in 1989, unfortunately, I mean, how do you say this? Unfortunately, because of what it's about, but also maybe aesthetically and obviously for Spike Lee, it's a, it's a great thing. But like this, this movie feels like a, a movie that will never not be important for, for any time, which uh, is kind of like upsettingly amazing to me. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't really add anything to that. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, there was, and, and I, I, something I definitely know I didn't clock the first time I watched this movie um, that I caught this time is when, when I think it's they're they're looking, the police are looking at the body and they're basically carrying it to the car. Bugging out keeps yelling, you can't fucking kill us all. And like, that like like right now saying that line in context to what he's talking about is i it's just staggering it's staggering both in terms of what is happening in the movie but also if you have even a like an iota of a percentage of of knowledge of what's happening in the world how how this how this should and can affect you uh it's 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 pretty in, incredible yeah, and I and I don't want to speak in hyperbole, but this is this is one of those films when we talk about must you see it before you die? Yes, you must, and it's it's essential. This film should be this film should be taught in schools for for none of its filmic qualities, but for everything that you just mentioned. Yeah, the, I mean, and you know, and obviously, this is you know, we're a hundred, we're almost this is a hundred, hundred nine, hundred nine episodes into into this show, and. We've talked about a lot of movies that are really good for different reasons and movies that we like, but I mean, movies that have had a, an impact on me in terms of the way that I kind of view the world, right? Uh, for me, and I just off the top, like Requiem for a Dream, um, I, Daniel Blake, for sure. And I mean, I, I can't say that any others have really changed like my outlook on life. I mean, I've certainly, it's made me think about things, but it, it's been a while, you know, and obviously since. I've seen this last, it's been a long time, but I, it really, it really does what it needs to do. And, um, yeah, sorry. I just, that, that really is such a, uh, uh, a hard thing to watch. And then it just, it's so, it's just, for me, it was just too, it was too quick to associate it with, with unfortunately this just real life events. And which to bring it back around to Roger Ebert, you know, his, what he's, I can't stop thinking about what he said in that paragraph of, of if you walked in with more intolerance than you did when you walked in, you weren't paying attention. And that's what I teased earlier in the episode is that, you know, Spike held that mirror up to society and a lot of those critics, they, they just didn't get it and they bought into white property is worth more than black lives. I, Every you know, there's there's quite a few critics that said uh, there was one critic in particular that said you know coming to a cinema near you but hopefully not too near you that's oh that just that makes me physically ill hearing that that literally turns my fucking stomach knowing that that was something that 
some newspaper allowed somebody to fucking print. That's awful. How the fuck can you live with yourself after having said that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but you, I don't know. You know, man. but there's something there's something that I wanted to admit to you. Um, so obviously you 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 gave me this movie. The first time I ever saw this movie was because you gave it to me and I watched it, and um, I had I had kind of had an epiphany though watching this other time because I I remember. I, you asked me after I watched it what I thought of it, and I was very meh about it. And I, and I, I, I think I've, I've kind of reached sort of I, – I, I kind of understand something now, which is when I watched it for the first time, it was probably 20 years old. Diff, way different state of mind. And my response, especially in terms of what happens at the end of the movie, was I don't get why it happens. That was – I don't get it. And I was like referring to, you know, Mookie throwing the the garbage can through the window, and then the the riot that kind of assumes afterwards. Right? My response is, I don't get why they would do that. That was that was my thought. And after watching it again, what I what I came to was, I'm I'm never gonna get it. And I think that's the that's in a way I think that might be a point is that, I'm I'm a white kid who grew up, on the West Coast. In, in like the rural esque era, you know what I mean? Like, like I, that's not my life. I didn't grow up that way. I've 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 never had a fear of the police, like like young men of 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 color have. That's just that's just not been a thing that I've been worried about. And especially over the last five or six years, trying to further educate myself on that and 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 watch more documentaries. I mean, Thirteenth is in the book, and it's a great it's a great movie, and it certainly gives you a lot of information. And and uh, the the, the college that I work for is really good about, I've taken a, a whole bunch of diversity, equity, and, and, um, and uh, equality like workshops and trainings. And I think the world is getting better about educating people on like just, you know, check your privilege and, and, and know what's, just, just be observant and know what's going on around you. And it's harder to do that. I, I, I have found that it's, it's much harder to be an informed, caring person it's much easier to just sit back and just not give a shit and and i i think what this what this movie should do is if you leave going i don't i don't understand it it's it is your duty to try and maybe you won't and again i never will fully understand why that all goes the way down it does in the movie but i think now that i'm curious and i and i i want to know why is better than what i did before which was like I don't get it. No, and, and that's great. And I'm not going to take, I'm certainly not going to take a holier than thou stance and pretend that when I showed it to you, I, I did. Cause I, cause I, like you said, I mean, I still don't. I, I, what I, when I showed it to you, all I, all I knew is that I had seen something important, even if I didn't know why it was important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I've, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of carelessness, myself and and as far as like you said check your privilege that's you know that's still something that i struggle with i'm not going to pretend that i don't but i but i my my hope is that i can just be receptive yeah and, and yeah yeah and and try to to understand and to to find empathy even though um, that word is thanks to the media is becoming meaningless but yeah you know, I, I hope to be empathetic. I hope to be an empath. That's what I, I strive for. And I, I think this movie can be a great tool to to help you reach that. Yeah, I agree. Can I do a hard pivot now away from it? Yeah. 
Um, you want to talk about cuts? Cut Smiley. Cut that whole character out of the fucking movie. Oh, no. Oh, come on. Don't break my heart like this. I love Smiley. I, uh, oh, man. I, there, there are too many things. I found it, I found it very offensive. Um, I also, the fact, and then when you do, when you read about it, that th- that was never a, a, a character in the movie and that, uh, Roger Gwenever Smith just like wanted to be in it and they added it kind of through the shoot. It feels that way. He feels tacked into every scene. I I I gotta say, if I if I could cut one thing from the movie, I would cut all of that stuff. I don't like it. I don't even like it. Even him pinning the picture of Martin Luther King and somebody else and could do Malcolm it. Malcolm X or the wall. Somebody else could do it. Find be, find a creative way. Spike, you're you're a smart dude. You wrote a great script. You didn't need to add this. Find somebody else can have that picture. Somebody else can put it up on there. I just I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> uh, uh, sure, I I get it. I mean, it's it's always unfortunate when when an actor decides to make some of the the decisions when it comes to mental handicaps I, i'm i'm not going to pretend that maybe it isn't unfortunate but there there are two beats with his character that i absolutely adore and the like i said the first one is him being the one that pins that picture to the to the burning wall and then the other one is is him being the tag at the end of that beautiful one shot that that sal and, and pino have they're sitting there in the restaurant and John Turturro is saying how sick he is of coming to work every day. He can't stand it. He can't stand being in this neighborhood that all of his friends make fun of him for, for serving pizza in this black neighborhood. And the beautiful moment and probably the moment that got Danny Aiello, his Oscar nomination, talking about, hey, hey you know, it, it, you might find it funny. But to me, it means something that I've been here for 25 years. I've watched these kids grow up. I've fed this neighborhood. I love I love the way he phrases that. And then to have no. the tag of is Smiley there, and there's that beautiful moment of recognition that Sal has watched Smiley grow up, and Pino so very easily dismisses him, tells him to get the fuck away from the window, chases him off the street. I, I, I do think it's a good. I do think it's a good moment, but I, I think again we could find another character to have that with. I just, I, I just feel like it's un, it's unfortunate and doesn't really add much to the movie that I, I think is pivotal and i think it's of 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 ways that this movie has has aged well or or like or you know aged in a in a purpose of wanting to inform you more i think that has just aged terribly terribly i i am going to i respect your opinion but i will respectfully disagree that's fine i i, I and i love you all i love you for i love you the more for it um <laughs> I try, what, and I am trying. What I I dude, I I seriously I took so many notes, and I I were we're so far into this episode. I don't know what else I want to. I mentioned I I don't think I could end the episode without talking about. And again, I don't know that I have a a a, a hard thought on this, but what do we make of Sal's relationship with Jade? I I think it's well intentioned. Again, he he talks about having fed this neighborhood, having watched these kids grow up. He's known them all their lives, some of them, and and she's she's no different. And he probably feels a great affection for her and and wants the best for her. But I think Mookie, Mookie, 
being a sort of cynic. I mean, he sees the worst in that situation. I, I love that scene. I think that's great where, you know, Mookie goes at Sal and says, you stay away from her. And he's like, how could, how could you even think that? I mean, and I, it's, it's just tough. There, there's a few lines and a few looks where it. I just can't tell what Sal's intentions are. I think when she first comes in, it's. It feels very much like, oh, I, you're, 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 you're a sweetheart. Yes, take the good table. I'll make you something special. But when he's sitting with her, it just. I don't know. I. I it. It plays weird, and I. It, it certainly, I think, gives Mookie something to play off of. The idea of of like, I don't like the way he's looking at my sister. I and I don't think it's wrong or bad or in terms of the storytelling i just i just felt felt very very weird watching that watching that scene this well time. i don't i don't i don't think i don't think mookie is wrong for feeling the way that he does he wants to be the big brother he wants to protect his sister so that that rings true but what also rings true and again i'm i'm projecting and i'm sort of trying to fill in the dots but we we sal has two sons he's got he's got Vito and pino and you know at the best of times they're both a pain in the fucking ass so maybe he looks at her as the daughter that he didn't have. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the way that I'm going to project and the way that I'm going to choose to look at it. You don't, it's, it's interpretive of course, but I, I choose yeah, no. to see the best. I, I choose to see the best in cell in that moment. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, and I don't think you're wrong. I just, I definitely stood out to me watching it this time. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's, it's more, like you said, it's more of that great, spike lee world building but yeah man i mean did we i mean like you said we're we're quite a ways in i mean i think we hit a lot of the the big emotional beats i mean that that shot of of radio rahim dead in the backseat is never not gonna be just i mean i mean your heart and your throat just very hard to watch well, yeah. I probably will always be hard to watch. I would, like you said, I would love for there to be a day where it's, it's something that we can look back I, on as a as as something yeah, that is a like thing of the past, a relic. Yeah, like like oh my god, yeah. can you believe? Can you believe that's that's how life used to be? Yeah, yeah, it, um, it would be nice. Yeah, I I don't really know that I have a a whole lot more to say. I mean, I feel bad. I, I and again, I don't want to. I mean. You know, we we barely talked about Ozzy Davis and Ruby D. We we barely talked about the the three guys on the corner. We outside of the opening, we didn't really talk about Rosie Perez. I mean, that's and that's the thing is, there's just there are so many people in this movie, and you know, out, outside of like Mookie and then uh, Sal and his sons, I feel like everybody else kind of gets an equal amount of play. I mean, I I I you know, it's not like pivotal, but I love when Sam Sam Jackson comes back in and I love what like it's like he has that extreme like he's on the rolly chair and he comes right up he's like cool it and like it's like I love that he's oh, yeah, like we didn't even we didn't even talk about the racist rant well I was that I was coming after this but but yeah like we totally can yeah I mean I don't I it's it's great again it's still relevant I love the idea of we get to have this moment inside all these characters heads where they get to say all of the terrible shit that's stewing around in their heads and reaching a, a boiling point on this powder keg of a day but maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm speaking out of turn here i think spike topped it with edward norton's rant in 25th hour how do you feel about that particular opinion oh you know i i think and, and it's and say. it's different i know i know it's very different well yeah I, that's i think 
okay, how do, how do I say this? I think it has more of an impact. I think, I think, I think what Spike is trying to do, I think it has more of an impact in this movie, but I think the writing is better in 25th hour. Like I think, I think the thought pattern, the thought process, like, like, and do the right thing. It's just, it's just all of these, these insults. And, um, there's not really necessarily a reason, a reason for it, but it also, it makes sense in terms of, of what, of what you just said, right? It's, it's a hot day. All, all the terrible shit these people could be thinking with the Edward Norton one. It's just like, it's so stream of conscious. And like, again, is it pivotal to the film? Probably not, but like the mindset of where this guy is and just, you know, thinking all the thoughts that he's going to have before he has to go to jail. Like I like, I, I like the words more in 25th hour. I think there's more of a meaning behind it, but I think the ultimate impact is better in, in this film. Yeah, well, the, the the 25th hour, I think there's more of a specificity to it. I yeah, mean, he is attacking he's attacking the city and he's attacking an important time and place in this city post 9-11. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, I mean, just to quickly, Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, like you said, how good is the scene where he brings her the flowers, man? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Again, it's mo- do we need it? Probably not, but I couldn't, I couldn't live without it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, his stuff is great. I love, I love making the kid run down to get him beer. I just, it, yeah, he's, he's got some, just some great little moments in the movie. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned cinematography as my unsung hero. Uh, behind the camera, in front of the camera, it's it's Ozzy Davis, man. Where where the fuck was that nomination? I I just can't I can't fucking get over it. Yeah, yeah. I it's yeah. I would say God, my my in front of the camera, unsung hero. Wow, that shit. That's tough, man. Um, but I'll tell you who it's not. It's not Roger Gwynevere Smith. I'll tell you that. Uh, I I I definitely got that. Are we going Giancarlo? Are we going bugging out? You know that's so funny. You you know me so well. I actually that is that is where I was going because I think again I think I think Spike and I think Sal and, and his sons get the most playing time. And as much as I love John Turturro, I think he's sung fairly well in the film. Um, I I do like Giancarlo Esposito. Um, and what a what an interesting career he's had too, man. That he's bugging out. He's he's uh, the detective in The Usual Suspects, and then he's like one of the the key villains of television of the of the 2010s in Breaking Bad. Oh, and how good is he in Breaking Bad, man? Every single time he's on screen, does he not just fill you with the utmost dread? Oh yeah, yeah. God, that's yeah. a good show. And and I just wanted to give Spike a little bit of love as an actor. I think he is. I think Mookie is is a genuinely undervalued performance. I I I totally agree. Um, and uh, I I think it's, you know, you can you can see him taking more of a backseat as he as he as he progresses. You know, Malcolm X he's in it, but it's it's not too too big. And you know, I think by God by that by you know, the mid nineties he's he's pretty much out of his own movies at that point. Which is a shame. I'd love to see him in front of the camera. I'd love to see what Spike at this age can do, after I, with all the experience that he's had. Again, I I listened to uh, uh, the DGA podcast and and he he was doing an interview. I forget who the moderator was, but he was talking about the Five Bloods, and they barely even talked about the movie. He just 
he just goes off on these tangents. It's just, he's just such, he, Spike Lee is such a character and just listening to him talk about whatever the fuck he wants to talk about is, is just always entertaining. So I feel like, I feel like we're coming, we're coming to the end where we've got a good length show uh, where we stand right now. And I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't write a sort of closing thesis, which we're, we're sort of leaning towards these days on, on the show because there was something that that was so impactful that struck me. I one of the supplements on the Criterion is is Spike Lee talking about the film twenty years later, and and where he does really talk about the criticism of the film, and he, and he says, and I'm quoting Spike directly here. He says that he wants to make it very clear that no person of color has ever come up to him and asked him, "Does Mookie do the right thing?" And that was man, that just got, that was just like a dynamite going off in my fucking brain when I heard that. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask the question, does anybody do the right thing in this film? I think that is, I think that is the more important question. Not does Mookie do the right thing, but does anybody? I mean, I think... Is that only that that kind of knowledge only comes from life experience, and I think, I think the people that do the right thing in the movie, if you, I mean, if anybody does or comes the closest, would be mother, sister, and and the mayor. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I, you know, there's something that I've been tackling with myself, and I've been trying to pass on to students and passing, and and to even to my oldest is. There's unfortunately there's a difference between facts and truth, you know, and and facts can be proven and truth is interpretive. Truth is is different for each person. And, you know, you ask you ask that question to different people and you're going to get different answers. I, I, I don't I really don't know. And the, the truth is, is that doing the right thing is unfortunately going to be seen differently by by every single person. You know, to to sound, I don't know. I guess I'll I'll sound pretentious, maybe a little bit, but this is what makes it a great work of art that I I'm glad is in the National Film Registry. I'm glad we're always going to have this, and I'm I'm so elated that there's always going to be conversations about it. And I I hope enough people listen to the show and and we help spark conversation. We or or we add something to it, as difficult as that might be, being two 30 year old white dudes i mean our voices aren't aren't necessarily necessary to these conversations but i you know i i want to be a part of it and i want to be empathetic and i want to and i want to hear yeah i i i I couldn't agree more and and just echoing what i kind of had said earlier with you know i my mindset is my mindset has changed a lot about the world in general in the 10 plus years since i've seen this movie last and and you know change happens slowly but if we stay dedicated it it will happen as long as we we keep working for it so i yeah i absolutely think this movie should be in the book as well um and yeah. hey man always do the right thing always do the right. i get it i'm gone um i like that moment that's a good moment too um so there you go that is two yeses from us on spike lee's do the right thing but of course 
as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. Let let us know what, what you think about Do the Right Thing. Let us know what your favorite Spike Lee movies are because I think after the last couple of months, we've definitely we, we've upped our game here at 1001 by 1 with our, our knowledge of Spike. Um, you can listen to the show on Spotify, and Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all of the great places where you can find those. You want to support the show? Hey, you can do that at patreon.com slash 1001 by 1. And coming up next week... I don't even want to say much about it because this was a a you pick. Do, do you want to tease it a little bit? Well, I just want to say thank you for indulging me. It's a uh, like last week with Silence of the Lambs. It's another big, important anniversary. It's a film that is, I mean, just really important to me. And I, I can't wait to, to share my love of it with you and our listeners and, and do a little bit of sequel talk as well, because I, I, I love the sequel just as much as I love the original, which is, is a rare, is a rare treat. Um, I don't know, man. I, it's, it's a, it's a tough movie, but it's, there's so much levity to it as well. I don't know. I, I, I won't, uh. I won't stumble over my words anymore. I'm just very excited to again just share my love of it. And I, I am I am it's, also it's top top ten. Top ten of all time for me. <laughs> I'm I'm also to discuss the the twenty fifth anniversary of this. Uh yeah, definitely definitely kind of game changing film. Uh but until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. 